I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air, and this is the weekly briefing for the week ending November 12th. It isn't often that we get to break news on this podcast, but this time around we've got advance notice of something that could be pretty spectacular. Roswell Biotechnologies has developed a way to take molecules, even individual molecules, and integrate them into standard semiconductor ICs. The result is a biosensor chip capable of doing any number of biological tests, including identifying infectious diseases or detecting antigens. In fact, the company foresees enabling anyone to do a genome sequencing in an hour for a hundred bucks. Well, let's not get too excited yet, though. The announcement next Monday is that the technology is available and that it can be licensed. But that said, the things this biosensor chip is eventually supposed to be able to do are amazing, and the prospects for healthcare are tremendously exciting. This week, a conversation with Roswell Biotech founders Barry Merriman and Paul Mola. First, a rundown of some of the news in the electronics industry this week. Last week on this podcast, we talked about how Facebook is betting the farm on virtual reality. CEO Mark Zuckerberg is calling Facebook's version the metaverse. We already knew NVIDIA was keen on enabling VR, but this week, during the company's fall conference, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang reinforced his company's commitment to VR, a.k.a. the metaverse, a.k.a. the omniverse. Basically, it sounds like he doesn't care what it's called as long as NVIDIA is selling the graphics chips. Anyway, you can get more details about NVIDIA's virtual reality plans on our website. Companies and countries are still sorting out how they wish to fit in the new global electronic supply chain that is still developing. Japan has enticed TSMC to help build a foundry there. It will be set up as a joint venture with Sony. The fab will run so-called legacy nodes and is likely to be used to manufacture sensors, among other things. And there's some big news in space. America's Viasat is proposing an acquisition of Britain's Inmarsat for $7.3 billion. The idea is to combine forces to better compete with new space-based communication systems, notably SpaceX's Starlink and Amazon's Project Kuiper. Amazon is working with Verizon, by the way. Again, details on the website. If you are already on this podcast episode's webpage, look to your left, you'll see links to all these stories. If not, you can go straight to eetimes.com where you can find these stories along with all our other coverage. You'll also find links to articles from our sister publications about power electronics, embedded ICs, analog circuitry, new product news, distribution news, and more. That includes industry news from our sister publications. Scroll down to the bottom of EE Times homepage to find articles from EDN, Power Electronic News, Electronic Products, EPS News, EE Times Europe, Embedded.com, EE Web, and Analog Planet. When we think of global trade as a modern phenomenon, we are simply wrong. Global trade is thousands of years old. 
The Silk Road was the backbone of a path that at times stretched from Portugal to China, with tributary trade routes that reached north into the British Isles and south into sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, it was sort of a hub-and-spoke arrangement, similar to the way airlines work today, but still, the connections were there. What's modern is how fast any one person can get from one place to any other on the globe. Trade goods now move quickly, but so do pathogens. Millennia ago, global ties might have been tenuous, but the pandemic we're experiencing now keeps showing us just how frangible global trade is today. The whole world is now acutely aware that global medical systems are simply not set up to respond well to widespread ongoing emergencies. We need to be able to get good information in real time, in order to respond appropriately. That requires medical testing and diagnostics. Now, it's possible to do testing quickly, but fast testing is not necessarily accurate. We can achieve greater accuracy, but that usually requires time, sending samples to labs and getting results back in days, if not weeks. And at mass scale, none of that is cheap. What is needed is a testing capability that is fast, accurate, and inexpensive. That sounds simple enough, but so does saying we could really use computers that use photons instead of electrons. There's some groundwork that has to be done first. Two of the guys doing the groundwork in the biosensor area are Barry Merriman and Paul Mola. Merriman has an interdisciplinary background that combines human genetics with math, physics, and engineering. Mola is a biotech specialist with a business knack. The two have been working together for quite some time, notably at a company called Life Technologies, which is now a division of Thermo Fisher Scientific. While there, roughly a decade ago, the two made key contributions to the development and application of one of the world's first advanced DNA sequencing technologies. In 2015, Merriman and Mola founded Roswell Biotechnologies with the aim of developing a sensor that could be as small as a single molecule, which could then be mounted on a standard CMOS processor to create biosensors. A molecular sensor is a view of biology never before attained, the company says. Next Monday is a very auspicious date in the electronics industry. You'll hear about that in a second. But next Monday, Roswell Biotechnologies will announce that it has developed its biosensor technology and is ready to license it. Roswell says its platform will support a full spectrum of DNA sequencing and biosensing applications. This includes the spectrum of tests necessary for the detection and containment of infectious diseases such as COVID-19. That's including sequencing, nucleic acid detection, antigen detection, and antibody detection. And that should be enough background for our conversation with Roswell Biotech Chief Science Officer Barry Merriman and President and CEO Paul Mola. Do you want us to introduce ourselves first, by the way? By all means, please do. Paul, you can start. Hey, uh, Paul Mola, founder and chief executive officer of Roswell Biotech. And I'm Barry Merriman, the co-founder, along with Paul, and chief science officer of Roswell Biotechnologies. Gentlemen, pleased to meet you. So delighted to have you come on the podcast. Again, this is a, uh, a special weekend 
for Roswell Bio. You're about to launch your first chip, your first product on Monday. Tell us what this thing is and what it does. Let me tell you why Monday first. So Monday, September 15th is our unveiling day. And it's a special historic day because it's the exact 50th anniversary of when Intel launched the first commercial microprocessor. The 4004 microprocessor was launched Monday, November 15th, 1971. It's 50 years later to the day. It's a Monday, which is quite unusual. (laughs) November Mm -hmm. 15th, 2021. We're launching what we call the first molecular microprocessor because it actually integrates molecules into the chip. Yeah, and and what we are really trying to do here is that if you think about when Intel actually launched their first microprocessor, they launched it to digitize information, right? That's why today you don't go to the newspaper stand to buy a newspaper. It's piped right on your phone. It's optimized for you. It's curated. You can select which pages to receive. You don't have to buy the whole paper. You can just grab whichever piece of of, uh, information you need. So with Roswell, what we're doing is we're digitizing biological information. Think about it. The reason the pandemic happened is because we do not have real-time uh, access to information that could help us actually combat it, right? For example, if you want if you, you want to get a diagnostics done, they'll come take your sample, they'll send it to a central lab somewhere. You know, by the time you get your results, you've, you've actually infected a bunch of people. And so the idea of digitizing biology is, no, we want to make that information available in real time. Uh, and we want to make it not, not only available for you, but for the community, enhanced by sensors in the environment and all this data being collected to inform wellness, to inform decisions, to inform actions. And the gap there is that we actually don't have the technologies to do that today. Why This is why the, the, the molecular microchip is super important to actually solve uh, a major technical, technological hurdle to achieving that, that digital biology future. And for us, it's the end of a long journey of trying to find the right way to put biological measurements on a CMOS chip device. You know, that, that's, that's the defining mission for all of this is how do you put molecular measurements onto a CMOS chip? Because that's the way to give it sort of the maximum scalability, maximum manufacturability, and all the other goodness that comes with having CMOS chip-based devices. Well, there's two paths to follow right now for questioning. One about the actual implementation of the chip and one about how it can ultimately be used. I'm going to start with the latter. How do you envision the chip being used? Is this going to be a slab in a lab and people will be able to to add stuff, you know, to, to introduce a sample to it? Or do you imagine it uh, expected to be built into... A, a system, possibly even a handheld system that can go just about anywhere. Well, that's the beauty of being on chip is it supports all those formats, right? Okay. There, there's certainly lab-based use cases, maybe for pharma, may, maybe they're using our chip to measure how a drug and its target interact with each other at the single molecule scale. Mm-hmm. And that might be in a lab, but the fact that it's on chip and highly scalable supports all the other things you said. So that's fascinating. So you you envision a uh, you know a point a point of care, uh, yeah, a point of care of uh, of product. Yes, but we 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 see going beyond point of care, right? Which we call closer to the community testing. 
mm-hmm. which, which means that you, you literally could go to your Walmart uh, grocery run and get a bunch of tests, your monthly test. But the real vision here is having this device in your home. And every day you take a cup of coffee, you run your wellness chip. Your wellness chip, for example, could, could contain all the viral you know, all the viruses that infect uh, humanity on one chip, I could run that test every day, not because I'm sick, but because I don't feel sick. That's the that's sort of the, the change in mentality we need to introduce that. We are doing a symptom, we're doing symptomatic testing, which means by the time I'm feeling sick, I'm, I'm actually really sick because my body has actually taken on the disease. It's much harder to treat. There's more impact on your body. What if you could catch this early? What if you could know day one or day two you've been infected because you can't test every day, right? So this is the future we need to get to and going from asymptomatic, going from symptomatic to asymptomatic testing uh, and having these devices in our home, which is sort of beyond point of care. Yeah, and we sort of envision something pretty radical, which you'd call like a home testing appliance, you know, and it could support all kinds of bio-testing things, not just for disease, but certainly for disease. But other things too, you know, is my milk spoiled? What's this weird mold in the corner? <laughs> in general, any biotesting you'd want to do, why don't you have an appliance for it? You know, the question is not why do we want this? Why don't you have an appliance in this day and age that you can just use to test for all manner of, of pathogens, biological materials, uh, just like you have a microwave oven, you know, why don't you have your home testing appliance? That is wild. So, um, as as a practical matter, I think we I think the value of such a thing is pretty clear. But as a practical matter, how soon might we see this? Uh, I mean, uh, are we talking about? Uh, uh, and, and how practical might it be at first? How practical could we make it? For example, I'm thinking about if you have something like this in your home, like you know, sitting on your kitchen counter like a Cuisinart, would you end up having to physically take samples and feed them into your Cuisinart? Or how how do you envision something like this actually behaving and being used at first? And do you expect that to be able to develop to become more sophisticated over time? Yeah, the way we, we envision it is that we, we have pretty much a device that can be adopted, as Barry said, for many use case applications, some related to disease, mm-hmm. mostly others related to wellness, right? So so there's actually value, for example, uh, you know, if you want to measure your hormone levels over a given period of time so that you get almost real-time measurements, that can be done. If you want to measure, say, hey, I need to optimize what vitamins to take, to take uh, for, for my wellness, mm-hmm. I could measure my vitamin levels and then I could, I could try different vitamin pills and see which ones actually are being uh, are bioactive in my body and, and, and helping me out, right? So there's, there's different applications and use cases. And we feel that the value is going to be primarily in how life transforming these applications will be that users will be driven to them. Mm-hmm. Today, there's a whole movement on biohacking where people are trying to sort of optimize their biology for wellness. And and we see that already happening, right? But on the other hand, then you find what COVID has done is really accelerated, you know, introducing these technologies into the home. Today, you actually have at-home COVID tests, 
Uh, that's just the beginning. The difference is that we we don't want a single test that tests for uh, a test that tests for a single thing. Mm-hmm. We want really comprehensive uh, tests so that they are very informative, and then making that information then available and accessible to make the right decisions or almost in real time as you're going about your day. So that I think that's that's kind of the plan, and and we're we're really exploring the whole menu of assays. We don't we do not intend to do this alone. Uh, we are primarily a platform provider, uh, just like uh, you know Apple is, and then you invite people into the App Store to build apps. So technically, because we have a universal sensor, a universal biosensor, any entity can come to us and say, "Hey, we want your assay on our ch- on your chip." And we say, let's do it. We'll help you put your assay there. And then they have an app store essentially for their bioassays where they are uploading all this information to a knowledge base. That as And as that knowledge base builds, then we have more information to really make these transformative decisions we're thinking about. You know, you asked about like the practical timing of it. <clears throat> Bring this back. November 15th uh, is when we're unveiling this technology. The unveiling means we're showing the world for the first time we actually have a molecular electronics sensor chip. So going just with the like- unveiling is we have a publication that is going to appear in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, um, very elite, scholarly, peer-reviewed journal. Yes. Uh, that'll be coming out about a month later, but we'll be showing some previews of that article. But that article is, goes deep on the technology. You know, It's a very deep technology stack behind this putting molecules onto CMOS chips. <laughs> There's a lot there. And this article that's coming out will also you know, be unveiling to the world how this technology works. And then after that, we start pursuing the commercial applications. So I imagine just like any other chip, it takes 12 to 24 months before you actually see it built into things. Like any other point of processor. I mean, some of the timelines are very similar to other chip development timelines. It it takes us around 12 months for each new version of the chip for each new targeted use case. Right. That's correct. So one last question about how it, uh, like the average person might be, might end up using something like this in their day-to-day lives. Um, I I think people are familiar with, uh, you know, 23andMe and some of those genetic things where, where you, offer a saliva sample. Um, there are folks who are diabetic who now can do just a really a micro pin prick to get a blood sample. What would this, what would be the sample that you would expect or, or could it be any of those? Yeah. So the way, it, the way the sensor, because it's a, a universal sort of multimodal multi-omic sensor, um, it's it's going to one be able to to sort of wire in any molecules that we choose to uh, to serve the applications, and then secondly, as you think about the the materials that you introduce to it, we've actually tested the specificity of the sensor across various uh, at least initially uh, over various bodily fluids, and we don't seem to see any significant impact on specificity. Right. So it can so, be according to whatever, you know. Right, it, it saliva, can, for yeah. example, is one we're working where we've spiked in saliva into our, into our sample, and it doesn't really affect the, the readout. 
And so to us, that is exciting because we, we feel that it's, it's, you, you have good sensitivity, good specificity. And we, we, at least at this point in time, don't see any specific hurdle in using various bodily fluids, be it saliva, urine, blood, et cetera. And, and obviously, this is going to be an area we're developing now and starting to focus on the applications to then tease this apart. And a lot of the primary sample collection be normal things, you know, mm-hmm. for saliva, you, you use a swab of some kind. Right. For blood, uh, in, in most tests of interest, you do a, a little finger prick. Right. Urine, urine. And so, you know, we're not trying to be very novel on the sample collection, other than you don't need a whole lot of sample. But the simplicity comes right after that. You know, you know one thing to think about is there are a few companies out there that send you kits for sample collection mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then take them back to central labs for measurement. And three days later, you know, your results come up on a website somewhere. Right. There's companies called like, let's get checked Everly Well. The whole menu of tests, which they do, which are both disease and wellness tests, you could do in your home completely in say 15 minutes uh, and make it much more of a thing that you can incorporate into your daily life rather than having to send something out, wait days, et cetera. But that's exciting that it works across a different, you know, a variety of different samples that you could provide and it's still effective across all of them. So whatever the the medical application your customers have, they can build an appropriate uh, a tester for, for what it is they're looking for. That, this that's all gets very exciting. Back to the unique nature of the sensor itself. That that's what enables this. Is there some fundamentally new technology here that gives you that specificity and sensitivity? Well, let's ask about that. So what <laughs> when you're talking? So it's re- I, I'm just absolutely fascinated by the notion of uh, the ability to actually get. Um, an organic molecule onto a, a silicon chip. It sounds like a standard CMOS silicon chip you're telling us. Maybe the question should be a little historical. What technological hurdles did you have to, what were the challenges to be able to get a, a, a biological sensor molecule onto a silicon chip? Uh, what were the innovations that allowed you to get that done? And then how does it work? Well, I'll give you the brief history of time here. So, you know, roughly 50 years ago, back in the 70s, it was first envisioned that you might want to use a molecule as a circuit element. <laughs> back then, they were things like a switch or a, or a rectifier or something um, as a way to miniaturize electronics, right? Obviously, if I could make a switch from one molecule, I can miniaturize electronics a lot. <laughs> that was a vision that was named molecular electronics, using molecules in electronic circuits but it was only a vision in the 70s. There was no possible way to make those circuits. You did, had no way to grab a molecule right. and put it into a circuit. Around 1999, the very first such molecular circuit was ever made. I mean, it's a physics lab experiment, right? They did physics lab things to make two little nano electrodes and managed to plug a molecule in between them and just measure the resistance of that molecule, just mm-hmm. thinking of it as a resistor. That was 1999. It was actually declared the scientific breakthrough of the year by the journal Science that year. And in the editorial, they said, you know, we've now shown you can actually put a molecule into a circuit, 
but this cannot be impactful until we can do this on chips, right? right. <laughs> right. A physics lab circuit doesn't help much. It has to go on chip. And, and, you know, that's been our sort of mission is to get molecules onto CMOS chip devices. Mm-hmm. There, there's two major things that had to happen for this to be practical. One is CMOS chip miniaturization had to reach a level where the actual CMOS circuit elements, say transistors, are down at the scale of molecules. Right. The transistor's enormous. <laughs> it doesn't much matter to put a little molecule in it. And as you know, and everyone knows, miniaturization, as per Moore's law, has been going on full of pace for 40, 50 years now. And these days, for example, in your current iPhone, you know, you have five nanometer CMOS in there. Right. And that means a technology where the actual, there are actual physical manufactured circuit elements that are five nanometers inside in mm-hmm. size in your, in your phone. So CMOS has gotten to the point now where we, you can make wires and circuitry that's at the scale of we the molecule. to yeah. molecules. And then the second point is to, is to put it in there, but put it in there for what? And what history has shown us is that silicon has been great for logic, right? right? It's done amazing things with just shrinking transistors and shrinking transistors and doing logic and logic-related things. So you don't really want to try and beat silicon at making a transistor. But what a molecule does exceptionally well that silicon doesn't do is act as a sensor. Because mm. that's what molecules do. That's how our bodies work. Molecules interact with molecules. Right. <laughs> it's the basis of biology, right? It's all just molecules interacting with each other. And so by putting one of those molecules in a circuit and electrically monitoring its interaction with a target molecule, mm-hmm. that's the killer app. You know, not a new type of transistor, but a sensor. Right. And so realizing that was the other critical thing. CMOS technology lets you imagine making these things but the other critical thing was to have the app that would really justify doing this and, and all the, the extensive development it takes to do it. And so I would say those are the two main things. CMOS getting to where it can make features that are molecule in size, mm-hmm. and then knowing that you want to put a molecule in as a universal type of sensor. Those are the two things that came together to sort of make this happen. That's absolutely wild. So are you, when you place the molecule so do you build the silicon chip and then place a molecule where you want it on the chip and is that done with a standard piece of of semiconductor production equipment or is there some other way of 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 building your sensor chip and what equipment do you use to is there any equipment other than what you would expect from a normal semiconductor opera fab involved in constructing your chip? Well, a short answer is the goal is that the goal of this is to have the answer be no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the critical thing <laughs> is to make this chip in a standard foundry. Right. That's the way you achieve the economics and scaling you're after. Anything you have to do that can't use standard foundries is problematic. And so right. we try and make everything from the measurement circuitry, of course, that's mm-hmm. standard chip stuff. Right. The critical interface to molecules is to make nanoelectrodes. We have to actually make little metal wires that have a gap the size of a molecule in them. Mm-hmm. What we've mastered is doing that within a foundry. The foundry tools generally have these capabilities, but it's a lot of process development to actually make a new structure right. in a foundry setting. Right. That's been a major part of our development is to be able to make the chip and the nanoelectrodes in the foundry. You plug molecules in 
separately, and that's you know a wet process and things. But getting all the way to nanoelectrodes on chip, the beautiful thing is you can do that now entirely in existing CMOS foundries. Oh, that's really exciting. So, so, uh, so at least for now, it sounds like a two, like a, a, a two lab process. One, the foundry process for the electronics, and then, as you mentioned, the the wet process. And I'm sure the details are possibly patent pending. Uh, that's that's a that's a separate lab. Well, yeah, but I would say one exciting thing about the details. Chips make life better in all ways. And so when we put the molecule in, we actually attract it electrically. We use electrical forces to attract the molecule to these electrodes. We don't need to go deep on that. There are some trade secrets there. But that actually is a powerful way for what we call assembling the sensor as well. It's electrically driven and electrically addressable. Yeah, maybe um, maybe don't, don't don't think of it as a separate lab. Think of it as a boot up stage when you start the chip, right? That 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 wiring can happen right at, just before you use it. That is really cool. With the molecular chip, is it a single molecule, a single sensor per chip? Can you do multi sensors? How does that work? Well, so the the at, at the sensor level. Mm-hmm. It's a single molecule sensor, right? Back to your question of how much sample do you need. This is as this is the ultimate in in resolution, right? Single right. molecule sensitivity, and so we we wire a single molecule, and that single that sensor then detects and interacts with with its complement in in the solution. Mm-hmm. But we can see signals of one molecule interacting with one molecule. And we can see the individual events. So this is unprecedented resolution of the of biology, right? So that's that's what we have. And uh, to your second question, more about multiplexing or just seeing multiple measurements. Oh, multiple measurements, right? So the sensor, that single molecule sensor, can be arrayed. Uh, currently, we have a, a 16,000 array that we are using in the lab that is mostly just for, it's, it, that's the effective sort of scale for development. But these can be arrayed in the, you know, millions, 10 millions. And, you know, we feel we have an upper limit of about a billion. Uh, you do not need those large scales for diagnostics, but for some things like drug discovery, you need larger arrays. And so the idea of having uh, which is what Barry alluded to earlier, and what the problem we've solved is that we have figured out how to have the the biological part of this sensor be fully miniaturized out the gate. That's an important point because it's almost like you you want to build a car, but you start with a truck, and then you try to shrink the truck and hope that you end up with a car one day and it works the same or has the same performance. Is how we've developed technologies before. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is out the gate because the sensor is fully miniaturized. It means that I can pack as many as I want in a given area, and which means out the gate I have actually resolved this scalability problem because previously whatever we put on top of the chip is macro and the underlying CMOS is nano and there's an incompatibility. This is a famous problem, actually. Everyone knows Moore's law. And there's, there's a problem called the more than more problem. Chips are great and scalable. That's Moore's law. But if you try and put something else on the chip, like some kind of sensor element, it's not. Right. And it tends to not have a way to shrink it. 
And so that's a very challenging problem for all sensors if you want scalable sensor technology. And the only way to solve it, there's only one way. <laughs> you have to pre-shrink the sensor to the limit at the start. And that's right. what we've done. And so we never need to shrink our sensor element ever again. It never needs to change. Truly, the only thing that changes is the circuit layout for this circuit that is a, is a current meter. And that sure. scales by Moore's Law. So that's why this was sort of our defining technology principle to solve the more than more problem in making this biosensor. That's and very cool. And hence the point in terms of scalability, then you have the ultimate scalability because you've scaled it. Uh, two questions. Which one do I go with first? Is there a single molecular sensor or do you need to alter or, or switch out different molecules to get different results for different the different types of tests you want to do? Yes and yes. Okay. <laughs> so the way we've done what, what basically you've said is we make a single molecular mounting point. So we have a special molecular wire that plugs in to metal electrodes. Uh -huh. This molecular wire is a, is a molecule that's just 25 nanometers long. But it's a custom molecular wire we make. It's a, it's a, technically, it's a protein. It's a special protein we make. And it's got a, a binding or, or a conjugation site, as we say on it, right. where you can plug in other molecules. And so that's where you get the universality. So the commonality is this molecular wire with a mounting point on it. You can mount pretty much any other molecule on there, and that gives it the specific sensitivity for whatever interaction you're looking at. <laughs> it's just wicked cool. Uh, what did, so the other question is, what does going from uh, scaling from um, a single sensor to to a larger array, what does it buy you? Um, sensitivity, speed, latency? What what do you get by by going moving up from a single element to a, a multi sensor array? I think it it depends, right? In in fact, for some applications, we need to go smaller arrays. <laughs> So it really depends on the biology question you're asking. If, you, if you're looking for diagnostic tests, for example, that tests only one or two or a handful of things, mm -hmm. you do not need as many sensors. Now, if you're doing whole genome sequencing and you want to do a $100 one-hour genome, then you need a you know, 5 million sensor array or a million sensor array, for example. Mm -hmm. And however, this, the size or scale of the array does not really change the sensitivity because your readout, we read each individual pixel as an independent readout, right? So, so and, and that readout itself is informative and you don't necessarily need to then uh, combine results uh, unless that's required by the application. Okay. And so for that, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's- Oh, it does. It depends on the application, it sounds like, right? right? Each application tends to need a certain number of, of useful sensors. Yeah. And, but it tends to put you into two regimes. There's some applications where you don't need too many, say thousands, but you want them super cheap. And there you just want to shrink the chip down to something almost the size of dust, right? Right. as cheap as possible. You have like a $1 diagnostic, you know. The other applications are ones that demand just as much bandwidth as you can throw at them. And they would always benefit from more sensors. And that's the future scalability to, to a large number of pixels, you know, big chips with as many pixels as possible suit those. And those include, like Paul said, whole genome sequencing. You're trying to measure 6 billion things when I read your genome. Yeah. <laughs> the more sensors I have, the, the faster and cheaper that's going to be. Yeah. Think of it as plexing, right? 
the the higher the plexing you need, then most likely the, the bigger the array to match the, the plexing requirement. And you mentioned something earlier that that uh, the company mentions quite often, and I don't want to let it just like blow by it because it's important. Uh, you're talking about a one hundred dollar chip for a one hour sequencer. Is that right? So is that is that the target? A target cost or or a median cost or or is that uh, is that a typical cost for this type of uh, uh, no? Chip? We need to get very clear. We like to call it the the uh, hundred dollar one hour genome, but we'll okay, call, we can say what we really mean by that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> we mean that actually. Okay. <laughs> well, well this, yeah, no, this was based out of our, uh, you know, b- both Barry and I, obviously, our background in genomics. And driving, especially sequencing to a point where it's it's actually has clinical utility and driving adoption in the market, right? And so we were involved in a couple global projects, uh, for example, starting up the Saudi Arabia Precision uh, Genome Project, where they were cataloging their population, right? And then using that information to, to inform precision medicine. And what we found out that even at that time, doing a $1,000 genome is, is really a high bar when you're trying to sequence a whole population. Mm-hmm. And there's various market research that's been done where once it gets to about 100 bucks, then you really start to make a difference, right? That's why we see like a 23andMe, uh, you know, many people have sent their samples to be to be cataloged by them. But the idea is you want to put it to, a, you want to drive down the cost such that, you know, every human being needs to own their own genome, right? You, you need to have a copy of your genome. When you go to the doctor, they pull it up and then they say, well, we can't give you aspirin because you're allergic, or maybe you need double the dose or, or half the dose, whatever. But the point is that $100, one hour genome is the total end-to-end cost and on a device that doesn't cost you a million dollars, right? Yeah, and yeah. so you, you you have this, the, and by the way, the $100 one-hour genome is a starting point for us. That's the starting point. But then from there, you have a roadmap, especially continuing continuing to be supported by Moore's Law to get to, you know, a $10, eventually $1 genome one day. Uh, wow. Because everyone deserves to have access to their genomic information because it's that powerful to inform your wellness. And that's what happens when people might say, a $1 genome, are you insane? I mean, that's what happens when you solve... Are you insane? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that doesn't alter this conversation. <laughs> Basically, that's what happens when you solve the more than more problem. When you make a, a sensor that can truly scale with Moore's Law and leverage what the semiconductor industry has done, not limited by the usual problem of sensors, you get to these crazy low cost points because it is just a sensor measuring something and chips are the the most, you know, mass produced economical technology ever developed by man. And so it's not crazy when you think of what Moore's law has achieved and we're just leveraging that uh, by putting the sensor in a fully miniaturized format. I'm out of the questions I had for you specifically about the, the sensor technology is there anything about that that I've neglected to ask about that's uh, important or fun or or just like what surprised you when you were developing it? And Well, you know, we are solving a, a super hard problem. Yeah. And, you know, when we started when we started out and, and you know, in fundraising and all and, and we told people and, and people thought we were crazy. 
And that's what we decided to call the company Rosewell. And we say, look, when they ask us, where did it come from? We say, it's the gift from the aliens. It's <laughs> Everybody knows that we reverse engineered a lot of uh, alien technology to get to where we are. And so it, this is one of them. But the, the truth is that we feel a, a, a big responsibility to deliver this technology to, to mankind. We think it's going to change lives. It's going to transform medicine. It's going to transform how we just take care of, of pandemics. And, you know, it's, it's a humble uh, pursuit, but it's all about finding the ultimate biosensor technology. And this is not just an incremental improvement or we're doing it a little better than X, Y, and Z. This is a fundamentally new platform. I think in the next decade or so, kids will be going to school to study molecular electronics because we are at that juncture and interface where biology and electronics, the, the boundary is actually now starting to diminish. And we will see more of this happen, especially these sorts of novel sensors come to market as a result of this. That is tremendously exciting. I wanted to ask another question about um, what looked like a side gig for you guys, the Molecular Data Project. Oh, yeah. I think you're referring to DNA data storage. Right. And the concept that instead of using magnetic tape to archive data, we could archive data into DNA itself. Magnetic right? tape? How old are we? <laughs> exactly. That's the whole point. Magnetic tape is still the gold standard for archiving data. You know, th things like, like Glacier and so forth at Amazon. There's huge right. tape farms behind them. And yeah, there's a concept that, look, I mean, DNA is just a, a, a information molecule, right? It's nature's information molecule. Yes. Nature stores biological information. Why not? Why don't we adopt it and store all our digital information in it too? Because it's quad instead of binary. It's got a four-letter code. <laughs> you can throw away two letters if you want. If you want a binary. Oh, okay, all right, yeah. We can have a four-letter code. But the point is molecular. And, and the way to take data storage to a new level is store information in molecules. And DNA is the one that nature gives you. So why not do it there? So there is a, a very large government-funded program. It's funded by an agency called IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Agency. That basically takes upon itself the mission to develop for the 17 intelligence agencies of the United States, which the most famous are the CIA and the FBI and the you know, Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's 17 of them total. But to develop for them the technologies that they think are important for the future of intelligence. And they certainly think that the ability to move information around in such a dense and novel format as mm -hmm. DNA is of great interest to the intelligence community. But it's also great interest for the future of data storage. You know, we're, we're, we're creating digital information at such a rate that some people claim we'll run out of silicon if we were to store that <laughs> in, if we were to store it in like solid state drives, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In your computer now, the, we would actually run out of semiconductor grade silicon, which is a limited resource. I mean, beach sand is not, but semiconductor right. silicon is especially mined. We'd run out of it literally in about 30 years. And so there, there's a need for much more dense uh, information storage things. And so the government through IARPA has a big program in doing this. And long story short, it's a four-year program. The intent is to demonstrate the feasibility of writing digital data into DNA and, and reading it back out. 
at a scale that could scale to exabyte and even zettabyte scale. I mean, that's the important scale for the future, right? And we, is a very competitive bidding process. Roswell was selected to develop the reading technology to demonstrate this. Mm-hmm. For the reasons we've said, that they looked across all the different reading technologies and only ours would have the scalability to possibly make it affordable to read DNA data at, say, the exabyte scale. Wow. That's a vast amount of data. You know, to, to convert it to an, a term that the people may have heard, like there's been a lot of talk about a $1,000 genome, you know, for biology, mm-hmm. biomedicine. If we're reading data at that scale, it's the equivalent of a, of a $1 genome. <laughs> so, wow. so it's far more demanding than reading DNA for biomedical purposes. And, mm-hmm. and again, the, they looked across the, the reading technologies and said, well, sure, you're a startup, you know, you're, you're bringing new technology, but it's the only technology we see that could possibly scale to this scale. Okay, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. It really was a delight hearing about this really wicked cool new technology. And it was a pleasure speaking with both of you. Pleasure is ours. No, and we're really gl- glad to connect with the readership of, of EE Times because this is this is electronic chip technology. It's all about putting biology on chip. We have been talking with Barry Merriman and Paul Mola of Roswell Biotech. The company will be announcing its technology on Monday, and more technical details will follow in the forthcoming paper that Paul Mola referred to in our conversation. Are you an engineer looking to impress friends, family, and coworkers with your innovative design ideas? Well, we have got an opportunity for you. EEWeb, our sister publication, is running its first ever design competition. The challenge is to develop an innovative motor control system that can be built using Arduino. The contest is open to any and all. Entry is free. It's easy to enter. Just submit your idea for a project on the EEWeb website, which is where you'd expect it, at eeweb.com. You've got until November 19th. After that, our judges will pick the top five proposals. Those five finalists will receive free Arduino Potenta H7 kits, along with a couple hundred dollars each to spend on parts, as well as licenses to LTM's development tools. Finalists will have three months to actually build their proposed systems in March, will announce the top two winners. Again, sign up at eeweb.com. There's also a link here on this podcast episode webpage that goes directly to the contest rules. Enter today. And that is it for this episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you very much for listening. The Weekly Briefing is available through iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, but if you go to our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with direct links to the other stories we've mentioned, as well as other resources. You will also find our other podcasts there. They are Power Up, hosted by Maurizio De Paolo Emilio. It's about power electronics. Embedded Edge is about embedded technologies. The host is Nitin Dahad. We also have the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with Sally Ward-Foxton. In addition, we invite you to review our video series, The Artful Engineer. So many engineers seem to excel at so many other different endeavors. In our most recent episode, we interview Michael Cass of NVIDIA, who has also become a top competitive skater, ballroom dancer, and juggler. Just to be clear... Not all at once, 
but still pretty impressive. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. I should have known this. I talked to Federico Fagin. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Five weeks ago. No, so there you go. Ago. He should have been telling you this. Yes. It's the 50th well, anniversary, and it, they had an ad in the electronic digital news, EDN or whatever, was was then the, the EE Times of its day. Yeah, yeah. So on the same day, Monday, November 15th, uh, which is why Barry Sank can post this on Monday, we are launching the first molecular microchip 50 years later. Yeah. That is really exciting. And a lot of symmetry because the first microprocessor was very humble, a couple thousand transistors, and, and look at Intel today, right? <laughs> wow. Wow, that is amazing. So if you released on Monday, it'd be the, our day. We're having a big event that day. We're having we'll call it your day. day. So let's, just, let's just celebrate the whole weekend. Yeah, no, yeah. no, exactly. It's, 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 it's the Molecular Electronics Day. Yeah. The sad thing about this is about me. So I'm not an engineer. You should know this. So, so you know, what November means to me is November 13th is the day that Felix Unger gets thrown out by his wife and the odd oh. couple. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good piece of trivia. <laughs> so the, this, this, this is the level of conversation. I'm going to try to ask you guys to elevate it beyond what oh, I can do. That brings me okay? back. I haven't, heard, I haven't heard the words Felix Unger for about 30 years. So that's pretty good. <laughs> Which zombie movie have you seen recently is, seems to be most scientifically accurate? Mm. But I could answer that one. Wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what is it, Outbreak or whatever? During the pandemic, I watched all the zombie movies. <laughs> I think the, is it, isn't it, is it called Outbreak? There's the one yeah. that is very accurate. <laughs> it's not really a zombie movie per se. That's a pandemic movie. It's um, close enough. I, yeah, yeah, it qualifies. Similar. Uh, there's infected people and they're problematic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I mean, so I did it qualifies. I'll 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 allow the answer. Okay. Up, okay. Yeah. Although my favorite zombie movie is probably Shaun of the Dead. So oh, we just watched that like last weekend. The scene where he's like walking through the quickie mart and